This is the Agile Thoughts Podcast, and I'm Lance Kind. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight, the main event, let's get ready to scale Agile. Come on, Dad. Let's go get him, Dad. Come on, Dad. You've been working really hard. You've been working out every day. You're so disciplined, Dad. Let's go, Dad. Go in the ring. Get him, Dad. Less is more. Less is more. Less is more. Mom, you get in there and you beat him to a pulp, Mom. We catch up with Craig Larman doing a talk at Beyond Agile uh, meetup in the Seattle area. What less is about at a high level is descaling the organizational complexity by deleting and eliminating almost all of the existing structure. If you want to boil down to understanding less really simply, it's a approach of deleting almost everything that exists in the traditional organizational design. There's almost nothing to learn about less. If you think that what you need is to add something, I'd like to suggest that's not our problem. What we need to do is delete most everything and then an organization will have uh, eliminated the first order factors that prevent intrinsic adaptiveness with low cost of change and low transaction costs. That's why the uh, catchphrase is called more with less because it's an approach that primarily, uh, you, know, you want to know how to do less adoption, this is basically all you need to know. Go into an organization, everything you look at, say remove it. <laughs> and if you do that, you will have a less adoption. It's that simple. <laughs> if you think this is something complicated, we've completely failed. Learning resources? Well, you can learn a little bit from me. Uh, we've written three books on less over the years. Um, it's the oldest of the approaches to scaling or descaling. Um, that's the latest book. It's the place to start. It's like a prequel. And then uh, many years ago, we wrote these books, which are, uh, this is kind of like the deepest thinking tools book. Uh, and then many years ago, I wrote that, which is another kind of minor. Uh, and then there's uh, Less.Works, where you can learn more about it as well. Okay. Let me now give you an example of uh, what I mean by descaling rather than scaling. So I want to illustrate, to reiterate, an example of descaling and some of the implications of structure. Let me, uh, first of all, define some terminology. Component teams. These are programmers, these little dots are programmers. They're not important enough to get anything bigger. And uh, these are components. What do I mean? Components are chunks of code. And component teams means that programmers are attached to chunks of code. Uh, so if you've heard of concepts like a microservices team, that's a component team. Uh, Front-end team, component team. Back-end team, component team. Uh, services team, component team. Platform team, component team. Framework team, component team. Library team, component team. API team, component team. The names vary, but the bottom line is that it's some chunk of code with a group of programmers attached to it. So what? Uh, let's consider the uh, story of some end-to-end -end customer requirement, F1, if there's an organization that's designed like this. 
Now, the first thing to note is that this is very likely, that the complete true customer engine requirement is going to cut through multiple components. So what? What are some of the implications of that? Well, one right away is that probably there's going to be a need to divide that up into smaller work packages and give the smaller work packages to those three component teams. Okay. Um, here's another implication, which is that this isn't the only thing that's happening in the organization. This is also happening. And now we see another implication, which is that we have the question of competition for this team's time. Which do they do first? Now, it doesn't seem very complicated in that case, but um, that's not the reality. The reality is it's F1 through F50. And uh, rather, this is uh, the reality. And not just there, but here, and here, and here, and here, and so forth. Craig has drawn on the board a backlog of features, and the features are the F1 through F50 that he referred to. So now when you ask the question, uh, what does this team do first? What does that team do first? As you can see, it's a little bit more complex. Let's take this a little bit deeper. So if you have teams associated with a chunk of code, component teams, if you have microservices teams or a front-end team or services team or an API team or a framework team or et cetera, et cetera, then what's the story of uh, getting F1 done soup to nuts? Like, let's take a closer look at it. The first thing that has to happen is that somebody needs to understand it, needs to understand, say, the user experience and the business analysis. Now, which of these nine component teams, like that's the JavaScript team, that's the DBA team, which of these nine component teams is going to do the user experience and business analysis? It's not clear which one you would pick. And besides that, that's the JavaScript team. Why would they be doing the business analysis? It doesn't seem to be optimal. Uh, so instead, what do we do? We add a group. And what would you traditionally call that group and role? So what was that? Possibly an architecture. No, they do technology stuff. Now, this is about the customer requirements. So what was For example, For example, we might call them business analysts or uh, UX analysts or variations of that. And. Uh, is it likely that they will learn everything, just hold on to it in their organic memory, and then communicate it verbally to everyone else over the months? Yeah, they think so. <laughs> Maybe, but what do they usually create? Some kind of a, an artifact. So the first thing I want you to notice is that the apparent need for this role, this process step, and this artifact is a side effect of starting with the constraint of having component teams. If you start with this as an assumption, it gives birth to the apparent need for this. Now, let's move on. We now have to answer the question, because in reality, we don't see all the lines. We just see a world of teams and code. And someone says F1. So the question is, what components are touched by F1? Who's going to answer that question? Well, it's a kind of a chicken and egg question. Which component team would answer the question of which components? 
A second question is um, who's, to maybe draw this picture a bit better, who's going to define the intercomponent interfaces? And who's going to define the technical design of this front to back? Because after all, that team just focuses on little parts. You're like the JavaScript team. So who's going to answer these questions of which components are involved and the end-to-end -end design? We need another role, right? So another role is introduced, sometimes called architects, or I do a lot of work in the embedded world, so sometimes they're called systems engineers. And so they'll often take some variation of that. And although it's theoretically possible that they just hold on to this stuff in their memory and talk about it to other people, they usually end up creating another document as well. And once again, to reiterate, I want you to see that the apparent need for this role and this document only exists because of originally saying we're organized into teams around chunks of code, the microservices team, the platform team, the front end team, and so on and so forth. Now, let's uh, introduce our three, let's say, component teams that are going to be working on this. We've got some developers here. And to do F1, uh, some work needs to be done in these three components, which means probably uh, that we need to create smaller work packages that explain to that particular component team what their task is. And in small groups over the years, I've seen cases where they can just read this stuff and extract from it. But in large scale, my world, that's not usually possible. So we usually need some kind of uh, intermediate expert that essentially uh, takes these and then from those and other conversations uh, creates a work package for this group. And I've seen different names for this role over the years. The name that I think strikes best is uh, technical business analyst. Maybe some of you have even seen that term over the years. And uh, once again, notice that the apparent need for this role and this is a side effect of starting with component teams. Now, uh, the programmers are needing to uh, create code. And I could, in theory, draw the next part of the diagram on the whiteboard like this. I could say that's the next thing that happens. But I'm not going to. I'm going to erase this, because this is a misrepresentation of what actually goes on. Why? Because this isn't the only thing that's going on. <clears throat> that's what's going on. And so if you actually look at the work of people, either they have queues in front of them of requests waiting to be handled. <coughs> These represent queues. And or they'll be creating multiple artifacts for the different requirements. And so now we end up with higher levels of uh, work in progress and inventory. But the key point coming back to why I erased this part of the diagram is the following. If you look now at all of these work packages in front of each component team. So remember, these are component teams, and none of the teams by themselves can finish any of the features alone. So each feature, or F1, this case, is spread across multiple teams. If you ask 
Imagine, for example, the work packages for F1, F1, and F1 come into these three teams. Now, do you think each of these is exactly 17 person hours in all three cases? Obviously not. There's variability in the effort across these three component teams. So if you were to assume that they're all working on their part of F1 at exactly the same moment in time, that's not true. <clears throat> because the work package sizes are different, the work starts to get done asynchronously. And another reason it gets done asynchronously is because of this problem here. And there will be people pushing for different prioritization with different items with respect to this team. So this team might get pushed to increase working on F1, while this team gets pushed to work on their part of F2. And for both of those reasons, the uh, varying prioritization at this level and the different work package sizes, for those reasons, the work starts to get done out of order. Um, and it can just be a couple of weeks out of order or when I was uh, working and living for a while in Hangzhou, China. I found, uh, I worked with a group where Two, there were two component teams, and this team did their part of F1 11 months out of order from that team during their part of F1. Now that's surely an extreme case, but it illustrates the dynamics. So consequently, to draw a picture of the code all coming together kind of misrepresents the situation. Because uh, if you work as a programmer, you'll know what I mean. Uh, this group is writing, because per definition, the uh, feature cuts across the components, so this group is likely to have you be writing code in which they're going to be making a call to say some operation here. Let's just call it operation X. And yet, uh, because this team is not working on their part at the same time, there's no guarantee that the service handler for operation X exists on this side. And consequently, they can't do continuous integration because the other bits of the code aren't there microsecond by microsecond, so they have delayed integration. In fact, what's amusing about these groups, several things that's amusing, one is that you can go to this team and you can ask them, uh, tell me about your integration practices, and they can say, oh, we're doing continuous integration. You know, we have Jenkins. So they've, they've conflated a build server, which has got nothing to do with continuous integration. You can quickly spot somebody who doesn't understand CI if they think it has something to do with a build server. Uh, speaking as one of the first XP coaches, uh, where the idea comes from, what continuous integration really means, and I know this will be surprising, it means to integrate continuously. <laughs> it, means, <laughs> it means it's a developer behavior. Integrating continuously is a developer behavior. It's not a build server. It's the behavior of pushing all the code all together all the time. So we have delayed integration uh, going on here. By the way, another uh, amusing thing when you ask a team is you ask them what's that, they'll say, oh, that's a customer requirement. Okay, so there's a delayed integration. Now, at some point, we gotta get this all together. So it's like this code needs to be put on different trucks. Uh, it rolls down the roads on the trucks and is taken to the truck factory where you take it all the trucks and you stick it all together. Now, who's going to do that? It's not exactly clear which one of these uh, component teams would do the, the truck traveling management. So let's make another group.
let's call them, I don't know, uh, integration uh, engineers. And they're going to take that code off the trucks and then try to stick it all together and finally integrate it. And once again, the, this problem and this apparent role is a side effect of having started with component teams. Now, uh, rhetorical question, does that just go smoothly? <laughs> no. And in fact, if you have a background in computer science, you'll know that the, uh, there's a super linear relationship between the number of lines of code that have been added before integration and the number of integration problems. It's a super linear relationship because coupling increases super linearly, typically with respect to the number of lines of code. So as a consequence, there's now going to be interruption back to the team to handle this integration step. So not only do we have this, but we have another source of interruption as well. Well, finally, it's uh, time to do the end-to-end -end testing. Which of these three teams is going to do that? It's not clear. Well, what, so what do we add? We need a, a testing team. And so we have a testing team, and they do the end-to-end -end testing. The need for this team and that process step is a side effect of originally having set up with component teams. And uh, of course, that doesn't go smoothly, so there's another uh, interruption mechanism back to the teams as well. By the way, uh, key point, notice that if you have component teams, it will begat a serial process. component teams, it will give birth to a serial life cycle. It's intrinsically inevitable. These mini component teams now depend on each other to get anything done, and it must be serialized, meaning they're all... The, the other teams will be waiting for the one team to get something done, and then the second team will do something while the third and fourth team wait. Serial life cycle. Now, there's a chance, a darn good chance, that we have some coordination problem because the work has been chopped up across so many different groups that uh, coordination problems are just rife here. Uh, so what do we need to do? Another role? We need another role. <laughs> Usually called project manager or feature manager, and the apparent need for this role is a result of the self-inflicted wound of having set up the organizational structure this way. Okay. Now, um, this group goes on like this for a couple of years. And uh, they get really frustrated. So then they decide to learn about scaling. And they go to a course on scaling Agile, and they come back, uh, and after they return, they do this uh, deep transformation to a new uh, scaling Agile approach. And now here's the new uh, scaling Agile organizational design. So now we have product owners, and uh, they write ethics, and we have Agile architects who write uh, architectural ethics, 
And then we have this new transformed organization, team product owners who write stories. And uh, well, now we have scrum teams. And uh, who is this? Well, this must be DevOps. <laughs> and uh, then um, this must be the agile system testing team who are doing the testing stories because they're true fictions. And uh, this must be either a scrum master or an agile coach. And now there's been a deep transformation to scale agile. What's that? RTE. So, in other words, to conclude, uh, all that we've done is smeared scrum paste and agile terminology on top of an existing structure. And if you think that this is going to systemically behave anything meaningfully different with respect to the transaction cost or the cost of change by adding new labels or by changing practices or by giving new names to people, I suggest to you that's not how systems work. That at this scale, all of that stuff will be rearranging the deck chairs in the Titanic. And the only thing that will make a first order factor change with respect to adaptiveness, and here's a suggestion for the rest of your life, never use the word agile again, because the plot's gotten lost on the term. People have come to use it now to mean anything that they want to be good. It's just become a meaningless term. But if we can remember that the other word that was being voted for was adaptive, and the point of what we were trying to say in kicking off this movement was not to go fast, not hyper-productive, not quality, not value, but to be able to turn on a dime for a dime in the context of the scientific method in business, then that will imply that at this scale, we're going to have to dissolve all of this and move to a very different structure. And so what less is about is essentially deleting everything that you see there in order to deeply change the organization structure. Are you interested in learning the fundamentals of scaling Scrum across your enterprise? Are you doing Scrum but unsure how to be effective when product development requires many teams? The business novel, Agile Grande, will teach you these skills through dramatic storytelling. The following concepts are covered. Scaling Scrum, systems thinking, organizational design, systems modeling, and how to develop a transformation plan for you and your organization. You can get a pre-release copy of Agile Grande for free at leanpub.com. The link is in the show notes. Next episode, Craig Larman tells us about Larman's laws and how they predict how your organizational change will go. But if you actually cut through the bullshit and you actually look at organizational behavior and structures, you can see in the presence of change initiatives that there's a huge amount of activity to self-preserve manager and specialist positions.